Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. I am an attorney for a professional sports organization, and this is my podcast. Uh, today, we have Bari Williams. Bari is currently in the tech space. Uh, she advises startups um, as an attorney and um, on the business side a little bit, but her career has been a little, um, well, like mine. She has switched industries a few times. She started off in the risk management and insurance um, industries where she was in-house counsel. Um, and then she went over to Facebook, which she spent a few years and she even um, put together their supplier diversity program and did a lot of diversity and inclusion um, types of programming at Facebook. And then she went over to StubHub. Um, Bari is really outspoken about diversity and inclusion in the tech space and not only from a hiring standpoint and elevating people within organizations, but from how technology in and of itself as it's being created is affected by the diversity of the people in the room when it's being created. Um, we talk a lot about that, and I really enjoyed having her on. Before we get to the interview, there are a couple of things that I want to tell you about. Um, one is to thank you all for the ratings and reviewing. Um, as I said, that that really helps us get heard by other people. Um, and I will read one of those right now. Um, I know the person who posted this, so thank you. And here it is. The title is Perfect Name, which I appreciate the pun there. Uh, and the review says, I went to law school in an effort to level the playing field. So I was excited to see this podcast being launched. Indeed, it does the aforementioned. I truly appreciate the positive energy of this podcast, acknowledging speaking about mental health. Wow, I'm listening to the podcast right now. And as soon as I typed launched, I heard the word launch. And now as I typed mental health, I heard it spoken. I'm tuned in. Thank you so much. I really, you guys, I really do appreciate these. They make me really happy. So if you all wouldn't mind, I would appreciate it. Um, the website is up to date too. I don't know if you've heard me say this the last few episodes, but it is. So go to ltpfpod.com um, and you could see more detailed show notes and links to different things that we talk about or different articles for Bari. There are a lot of her um, written pieces that I've included as links. And, um, and then on the social media, we're at ltpfpod. Um, couple of other things. I'm going to be at a few events over the next few months. So if you're able and around, um, please come and say hi. So the first one is at Michigan State University's College of Law. The International Law Review's um, holding a sports law symposium on February 23rd, and I'm going to be there for that. The following day, I'm going to be at UMass for the Women of Eisenberg Conference, and I'm really, really excited about that one. I'm on a panel um, 
talking about seizing opportunities, basically. And then I'm going to be um, part of a second discussion with Professor um, Nefertiti Walker. Uh, I am super excited about that. We are still figuring out the details on that one, but it's going to be great. And some or all of these may be recorded for use as an episode over the next few months. So um, you could be part of a live taping. Let's get into the interview. Hey, Bari. Hey, how are you? I am great. How are you? I am. I'm flourishing now that I uh, have found some headphones and <laughs> kept my kids occupied. So <laughs> I'm flourishing. I plan to flourish for the rest of the day, at yeah. least until this is us. Uh, apparently, is going to ruin my my Sunday. A well, bit later. Have, uh, last week's episode. Oh God! Is that the one that you're watching? I no, I watched that one already, and so I'm just I'm just waiting to get to tonight's episode. I, I I need to just like have three boxes of tissue just on deck. Why do I always feel like it's on Tuesday? It is, but so there's a whole backstory with the character who and he loves um, Super Bowl Sunday. It's like his favorite day, right? And that was also the day that the th- the three kids in the story were conceived. So. Oh. It's, yeah, so, oh, so they're, mm-hmm. they're it's this is like a big episode, but I, apparently there's another one on Tuesday too. I'm not ready for a one-two punch. I don't know if I can take it. I'm so confused. Um, I'm just gonna see what pops up on Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we started recording, you asked me a question, which I guess we should probably get into, seeing as it is Super Bowl Sunday, uh, while we're recording, and. You asked me who I'm rooting for. Mm-hmm. And so this is a complicated question for me <laughs> these days. Um, working for a professional football team, I tend to only have allegiance to that one team. Right. Um, however, my Facebook and Instagram and all the social feeds are blown up to hell because I'm from New England. I grew mm-hmm. up in Massachusetts, but I went to law school in Pennsylvania. And so it is just a disaster. I am yeah, staying. You, you got to pick a side. Yeah, I'm staying neutral. And I am wearing um, a T-shirt that just has, it's actually one of my favorite shirts. It has uh, like an outline of the state of Massachusetts and says home as like my little. Oh, yeah, I have one of those. Yeah, I love um, it. Of California. Mm-hmm. I love it. And um, so that's kind of, that's as far as I'm going today, but I'm wearing um, the team I work for's uh, jogger pants. <laughs> okay. I see. I see what you're doing. But, I see it. But you are a Raiders fan. So who are you rooting for? Oh God, I'm rooting for the Eagles because I, I I'm sorry. Tuck rule January, 2002. I hashtag never forget. I, I can't <laughs> do it. I can't do it. I mean, I actually feel like that game, that was the, that was the pivot. The entire universe shifted in (laughs) favor of the Patriots and Tom Brady in that game. I firmly believe that. (laughs) Um, How are you doing with the Raiders move to Vegas? Uh, So I think my fandom has an expiration date of uh when they move so and, right. and it, it it hurts 
even more because the Warriors and the Raiders and the A's all play in the same complex right now, right. which is like 15 minutes from my house. And they are all moving. So, I mean, at least the A's are staying in Oakland, but they're getting a, a stadium down by the by Jack London Square. But the Raiders are moving to Vegas and the Warriors are going to San Francisco. So uh, I got to get as much as I can out of the, the next year and a half or so. Oof, that is tough. Yeah. I am sorry to hear that about all your teams. I know. But what about the Warriors? What are you going to do about basketball? Um. So, I don't know. I mean, I feel like they're not as bad because the Warriors started off in San Francisco. And then they came to Oakland. But they've been here for 40 years. So, like, the Raiders moved here before I was born. So, I are sorry, the Warriors. So, I only know the Warriors as an Oakland-based team. Yeah. And I was was a Warriors intern when I was at UC Berkeley. So... It's, you know, I I have an allegiance to them because I love sports. I love basketball. I worked for the team in college and I rooted for the Warriors when they had run TMC. They had Chris Mullen and Mitch Richmond when they had Chris Webber. And then even when they had like Bontigo Cummings, who know who was like, what? Who is exactly? (laughs) So (laughs) So when people say, oh, it's really just a tech bandwagon team now, that's not true. At least not in my case. My husband's also um, from Oakland. So we, and he's one of those people that he watches every game that he can and and like feels it viscerally when they lose. Like I heard a blood curdling groan yesterday in my living room. Like, oh, okay. I guess they didn't win that game. (laughs) Um, (laughs) How, so you went to UC Berkeley you went to UC mm-hmm. Berkeley for mass communications. How did you end up as an intern with the Warriors? Yeah, so I just always really loved sports. And I think a large part of that is because my parents did. Um, both of my parents were, they were athletic, um, which is not a gene I seem to really inherit. <laughs> um, but my mom ran track and my dad, uh, he also ran track. And my dad went to Berkeley. And um, was friends with a lot of players. And he actually got into uh, sports, being a sports agent. So my dad was a sports agent for a, a good while. And he represented a lot of um, Raiders and, and A's. So I was always kind of at games and around that. And always, or, or games were always on. And mm-hmm. my mom was also a huge, a huge sports fan. And had season tickets when the Raiders came back from L.A. So... It's, it was just always something in the house. And so being in mass comm and then having taken some journalism classes and then loving sports, I really just kind of wanted to understand how the sausage was made. So I was an intern at, uh, in the sports department at our local ABC affiliate while I was also, um, a Warriors intern during the season when they hosted the all-star game, which was super fun. Yeah. I, so I basically Google stock people before interviews. <laughs> it's a it's a really useful skill I learned back in the day when I'd be like chasing after boys. And um <laughs> love it. And none of that showed up. So I'm like hearing a lot of this or taking in a lot of this for the first time. So your dad was an agent? Yeah, he was a sports agent for quite a while. Um 
I don't remember when he stopped. I want to say maybe around 1991 or 92. But at that point, it was already baked in because both my parents just love sports. So that was it. Did you try and play any sports? Oh, I tried. Yes, I made <laughs> many attempts. <laughs> um, but I played what did I, I played tennis and I played tennis in high school and um, I was a number two ranked player on my team. And yet I was really not good, which should tell you how <laughs> bad our high school team was. Um, and yeah, my I mean, my grandfather was athletic. Both my grandpa, everybody in my family was athletic except for me. So, you know, just luck of the draw, I guess. Did you um, did your dad being an agent have any influence on you wanting to go to law school? Not at all, because my dad's actually not an attorney. So it, for me, it was wanting to really just understand what is what's a way that you can be powerful in the business world, but you don't necessarily or you're not facilitating business decisions necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I think having the ability to understand how rules and regulations and laws can be created and also circumvented and also weaponized is an extremely useful skill. And for me, that was kind of the discerning factor was what, what is it that I want to learn and how can I, how, what's the best tool for my arsenal and law school is just the answer for me. You're, um, I mean, it, I said at the beginning, like your career is great because of how varied a lot of your positions have been and your education is very similar. You know, you didn't stop at just getting the Bachelor of Arts, you went, I mean, you went and got an MBA in business marketing. You got an MFA in African-American studies. And then you got your law degree. Holy moly lady. Uh, <laughs> and and much like other guests of mine, I don't know what it is with my guests, but you graduated college early. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think. A lot of that is due to the fact that my mom and my grandmother and all my grandmother's sisters uh, or, and a good number of her brothers as well were all in education. And so I didn't really have a, an option to slack because there was literally always somebody who would say, oh, you look like you have some free time. So <laughs> <laughs> how about you try X, Y and Z? Um, and I feel like it was very, it was useful. Um, mm -hmm. and it also instilled a work ethic that really kind of pushed me and drives me now. Um, so a lot of the things that I, I did, I had to take a language. I had to play an instrument. I had to uh, play a sport. Even if I wasn't good at it, you have to do something. And the beauty of it is even the things that I didn't want to do. And eventually, you know, my mom said, you don't, okay, you can stop because clearly you don't enjoy this. Mm -hmm. But understanding that I didn't have a choice until it was a certain point to me is a good life lesson because it's, I mean, you, you get that every day in the real world, right? It's like, you have to do certain things, whether you want to do them or not, doesn't matter. And so it's, you know, the, the lesson of you do what you have to do until you can do what you want to do. That, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm just thinking of all the things I have to do on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. that I don't want to do, like pay rent. <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> but, you know, in my research, there was something I, I found out about you that um, 
I think goes along with that work ethic that you were talking about. And it's about your grandparents and they were Mississippi sharecroppers um, mm-hmm. o- with only elementary education. How has that shaped who you are? It's, it's huge. I would say, um, so my parents were married and then divorced when I was really young. So I don't actually remember them being married or us all living in the same house. And so I tell, I tell my mom all the time, like, I am the best thing born out of your bad decision making. And (laughs) (laughs) she will, she tends to agree. Um, but, but my parents were very, they're vastly different. So my dad's parents were, were sharecroppers and they had elementary school educations. I think they had, they had third and fifth grade educations. And so it's, that is not lost on me. And then you juxtapose that with my mother's family that was, they were middle, upper middle class. And um, she was raised in a predominantly white area. My dad was raised in North Richmond, which is really poor. Um, It's environmentally unsound. There are refineries nearby. It's literally surrounded by train tracks. Like it's just a completely different area. And you have to be gritty there and you have to learn how to hustle and you have to want better in order to do better. And my mom has that same kind of hustle, but she she learned it in a different way. And also her family was educated. They had master's degrees. So you juxtapose those two. And I think the duality of that for me was really a a good blend. Um, It made me appreciate the power that being educated can give you and what that can do in terms of not just individual success or ability, but community success and ability. Yeah. I think it's incredible. The just how soon in our life or how soon from when we were born, right. There were people, you know, in our lives who may have lived very, very differently than we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I always find that to be, when you hear those stories, it, it really gets to the soul of who everyone is, you know, who the person is that you're talking to um, mm-hmm. and informs a lot of their decisions, which, um, you know, I think for you with your career and and how um, you you're not afraid to take risks with it, it part it, you know, you kind of see it in there as well. Um, when I try. <laughs> <laughs> Try. I, I mean, sometimes I'm I'm good at it, and sometimes I'm not. But I think that's the story of everybody. Well, for sure. Um, you know, and you've not been afraid to to call people out, which I have really admired about you. Um, one of the things that you are known for is your uh, vocalization about issues regarding diversity and inclusion, um, and not just from a you know, hey, we need to get everybody involved, but also from a standpoint of like technology and and making sure that technology isn't um, put together through the lens of just one, you know, group of people. Um, do you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so again, I think a lot of that is, it's interesting because it really dovetails with what you were saying in terms of 
people that, you know, are, are in your life or maybe related to you that are imparting wisdom and stories and things that are so different from your, your personal lived experience. And I think a lot of that is born out of those stories for me. And my, like my grandfather, um, he went to Berkeley high school. He integrated Berkeley high's basketball team, which is just like, whoa, ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And, um, and he fought in world war two and, but you know, comes home and he lived in California. So it wasn't necessarily as, as bad as, uh, being in the South, but he told stories of when they were out, um, in the field and, you know, the, they were raining down propaganda that essentially said, why are you fighting for a country that will not even give you your own rights? Like, (laughs) yeah. And it's, I mean, I was like, yeah, that's actually a really good point. (laughs) But, you know, it's thinking through stuff like that. And my grandmother um, has, she was one of, one of seven kids, uh, my mom's mother. And she and her twin brother were the only, the only ones out of the seven that were not born on a Native American reservation. And so like having that context as well, and like choosing to leave Oklahoma to come to California for a a better life. It, all of those stories are for me, they're touch points. And so I felt like I would be doing a disservice to not call shenanigans on stuff when I see it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, if, and it's never to just say something isn't correct. I, I was raised to, to always raise a solution. So my mother would not allow me to talk about a problem in our house unless I came to her with a solution as well. I couldn't just say, I don't want to do that. I I had to have an alternative. I don't want to do that, but let's do this instead. So, and that's how I try to approach my work. That's how I approach the things that I write. That's how I approach advising companies that I advise is yeah, this may not be the way, but here's an alternative answer. And I think particularly around diversity in tech, there are a lot of solutions and easy answers that people are not really pursuing because I think it takes them out of their comfort zone. And for me, a lot of that is just, you know, raising questions and observations and offering solutions because right outside of your comfort zone is growth. And I think that that's just something people need to understand. And also the basic the very basic infrastructure of any business is money. And if you are marginalizing entire groups, you're losing money. It's just, it's simple. So that's kind of my, uh, my stick on, on diversity issues, particularly in tech. You, um, you started at a, you know, well-known law firm and then you went on to, um, work in house rather quickly for, um, you know, compared to most people. Um, and then you ended up as a program director for Mm -hmm. minority council of California. Do you think that that work helped shape your advocacy, um, around diversity and inclusion even further? I think, I think that that certainly played a part. I wouldn't say that it, it made me more vocal about it. I think anybody who, anybody who knows me, um, and has known me since I was little, I have always 
asked why. And I, I've always been someone who politely, most of the time, questioned authority or what's the rationale for why things are being done this way as opposed to some other way. Were you, can I, I'm going to interrupt real quick, sorry. Um, sure. So did you do that growing up with your parents? Oh, yeah. And how did yeah. they respond? Um, it depended on what I was questioning and, and <laughs> when <laughs> and sometimes where. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because my son does it all the time now, too. And I'm like, oh, my God, can you just roll with it? Like, just please, can you just do what I'm asking you to do? And it's funny because when my mom's over, she'll just kind of give me a quick side eye and say, hmm, you used to do that. Yeah, I, I can remember doing that. I, I don't think I grew up in a family where that was welcomed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I can, I mean, I just remember doing it forever. And mm-hmm. it, the reaction was, I think, it, it wasn't great. Let's just say that. It was not welcomed. Um, so I will, yeah, let me... I should probably put an asterisk next to that. I, my grandmother, my grandmother was very good about teaching me that there is a way for you to say anything. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Hmm. And that is, it it could be everything from voice inflection. It could be diction. It could be tone. um, It could be the way that you're phrasing the, it's all of those things. Right. And so if I didn't understand why something was being done a certain way, I could ask that question, but I also had to be cognizant of the fact that I had to deal with the answer. My dad used to always tell me, he's like, don't ask a question you're not prepared to get a real answer to. And that was like, whoa, my parents are very direct and they're, they do not sugarcoat. And so I think that's, that may be why it was not as frowned upon for me. And also I learned how to ask the questions appropriately. What a wonderful lesson to have from your grandmother. I still, I mean, it's something I still struggle with, you know, on a day-to-day basis because I don't realize sometimes how things may come across. And, um, and anybody who knows me and is listening to this is probably laughing because at one point or another, I have probably said or, or asked something in a way that I didn't realize was like, I don't know, super snarky. You know, and, mm-hmm. and then after the fact, like I've come to realize it like soon after and I'm the first person to apologize when it, it is something that is very unwarranted. Like I will mm-hmm. immediately go and say, I am so sorry. That is not what I the way I meant to act, whatever. And it's a learning process. But so great to have had that um, uh, lesson growing up because it really does affect how you're able to be an advocate. Yeah, I think. And I will be completely honest and say, I don't think I really got good at that until maybe five years ago. Until then, I was just like, I was shooting shots in the dark (laughs) with how I was communicating. (laughs) It was not it was not awesome. Um, But I think that lesson is also very applicable in business. right? Right. So it's thinking through. It's another thing that my mom and my grandmother taught me, which I thought was incredible, a brilliant, a brilliant analogy, because when you're teaching children, people learn in different ways. So you have some kids who are, who, you know, they're tactile, so they have to learn by doing. There are some that need visualization. So they want you to whiteboard something or draw it out or, or show them what it looks like visually. There are some who need repetition. So they're, they're very, um, audio oriented. And so 
the thing that they always taught me was that you need to give people information in the way that they are going to best receive it. So I, my message could be fantastic, but if you are tactile and I'm drawing you a picture, that's, you're going to miss probably, you know, half of it. So it's also understanding what do people need and how do they, how do you need to communicate with them in order to best get your message across? That is such an important lesson and one that I'm constantly using. And I think, you know, you as in-house counsel have done the same, you know, depending on who the CEO is, the COO owner, right, of a company, Mm -hmm. you have to learn how they're going to best process information so that you can communicate it. And, and it's something that I, you know, I don't think I realized I was doing until maybe, I don't know, a year or six months ago when I was like, oh yeah, I do this differently for this person, this differently for this person, because that's Mm -hmm. just how they take information in and um, how you're likely to get a response actually. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And that's what you want, right? You want to be heard. And And if you're particularly trying to work with a client or get them to do something maybe in a way that they didn't, they didn't want to, you definitely have to make sure you're providing them the information that way. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, how did you, you've worked in so many different industries. You've been in risk management, life sciences, insurance, tech, fintech, advocacy. Where, how have you found the ability to move from industry to industry? People ask me this a lot too, and I'd love to hear your you know, answer. I think you always have to be able to make analogous arguments. And I think that that's why being a lawyer, it, it is a little easier maybe for me to do or for you to do. Um, because it's something that if, yes, you may want a very particular type of experience, but if I have done something that is similar and it may just be in a different industry, that doesn't mean the skill set isn't applicable. It just means I need to clearly connect the dots for you and spell out how that experience in this industry correlates to the experience in that industry. So I think it's being able to tell your story in a way where people can find that common thread and where it becomes clear as to what your analogous experience is and how it could apply in that new role or that new industry. I think it's just being cognizant of what it is that you bring to the table holistically and not necessarily just pigeonholing yourself to one particular thing. I love that. I think, um, you know, when I have these calls with people, um, and I try, you know, my best to have them as often as I can with people, but about how to get into sports law, for example, right? Um, mm-hmm. And say the person has been working in insurance defense. Um, you know, you have to kind of say, listen, where, what are the skills that you're using and how do they apply? And, um, and my, you know, I'm always like, Get your hands on contracts, get your hands on contracts, get your hands on contracts, because that is 90% of what you're going to be doing. Um, and it's not going to be fun player contracts either. Um, learning to build those arguments, I think, is is a really good skill that everybody needs to have. And I don't think it matters if you're a lawyer. Um, it, it is a little easier for us, right? Because contracts are contracts. And no matter where you work, you're going to have to learn the risk risk tolerance of that particular you know company. and ownership or whatever. Um, but the law stays the same, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, you might have some nuances and whatnot, but, uh, 
when you went in-house for the first time, what did you find was the biggest challenge for you? Um, I think I actually didn't find it. I didn't find being in-house challenging so much as, <clears throat> excuse me, I really, I really liked it because I, I always wanted to be integrated into a business. And I find that being at a firm, you may be doing interesting work, but it's piecemealed, right? So right. you're not sure what it is that you did, whether that's a memo or it's a brief or it was a contract or it's, you know, some, some bylaws, what happens after that? That's the other piece too, is that you do things and it seems like you're doing it in a vacuum. So you don't know what the outcome was. You don't know what happened after that. You don't know how this piece may fit into a larger puzzle or how is it being integrated. You're literally doing this one thing and then you you complete it, you build the hours and then you move on to the next task. So going in-house was great because you get to see every sort of bit of the company and you understand holistically how what you did is impactful. So for me, I really liked that. I didn't think that that was necessarily hard. I would say the hardest transition I probably had going, excuse me, going in-house was going from uh, AAA, which was a hundred year old insurance company and super kind of traditional to Facebook. That Mm -hmm. was probably a harder transition. And it wasn't necessarily just the work. It was adapting culturally because I'd been used to wearing business casual and, you know, going through 42 meetings with 67 different people to change like one thing on a slide deck. And at Facebook, it was the, the culture is very different in the sense that it's empowering and they want you to just go do. So it's more of a focus on execution as opposed to, um, you know, talking about execution. What were you focused on at Facebook? So I was part of a group called Inbound and Development. And so what that means is so inbound essentially was all supply chain and procurement and for the entire company. And there were four of us that handled all supply chain and all procurement for the company. The development piece of that for the group is I kind of liken it to our our little team was where projects were born and also where they went to die. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes at the same time. Um, so. If you if you have an idea or uh, you know product was being kicked around and they're thinking of of seeing if it was viable, it would start with us. And then if it became, I guess, its own thing, like a perfect example would be Facebook Live. One of my colleagues worked on Facebook Live um, because it was a pilot project. And eventually, when it grew to scale and it became large, and then you know you you're signing with the Olympics and you're signing with you know other people. Uh, it moved to the platform team, which is the team that handles, you know, integrating large types of content, which made sense. But the issue with that is like, oftentimes we would support something from infancy and it would be a really cool project. And then after a year or so, it would be moved from us and find a new home. So, and you might want to keep it. So that was the hard part, but it was always really cool. It was always really cool. I also worked on stickers. So when you reply on Facebook and you have different stickers, Um, we did that. And what else did I do? I did, I built drones, lasers, and satellites, which was really cool. Wait, wait, what? (laughs) I I built drones, lasers, and satellites. So that was, 
that was cool. I supported the uh, the Connectivity Labs team, which I guess they're internet.org. So, okay. uh, so Aquila, the drone that Facebook has been testing, I did the legal strategy and supply chain and IP for building that drone. And it was the coolest project. And I worked with brilliant, brilliant engineers and fantastic people to, to get that stuff done. So, so yeah. Do you, um, how do you, how do you not get mired down in the the very technical nuances when you're working on a project like that? Or do you, do you have to? You do with certain things, right? Like if you are essentially building Frankenstein's monster and you want it to fly and beam Wi-Fi down, you have to get into some technical nuances because if you have, you know, an autopilot system and maybe the solar panels and the, maybe if your indemnity, if they're, if they're not tied together, or at least the timelines don't match up, you could be screwed. Right. (laughs) So, so you have to pay attention to that kind of stuff, which was interesting because that's part of it, right? It was a legal strategy of how do we whiteboard this and how long do we expect it to last? And so that means that when we do this and we build it, we have to make sure that we're contracting for these obligations to last X amount of months. And so you have to be thinking about that each time you contract for something that goes into this larger, uh, this larger drone. So it's, that kind of stuff, yes, you get into the nuances, but I would say that Facebook also taught me, which was hard. And I say it's hard because having come from slower moving companies and also companies that were um, more traditional, they focus on execution. So I'd been in meetings where, you know, it, the first time we had talked about an idea and five weeks later, it's it's live. So you just don't have time to you know, bandy about a whole bunch of different stuff. You have to just say, here's the, here's the best case scenario. Here's the risk, the largest risk. Let's see how much of this we can mitigate and what we can't, like what are some backups or workarounds? And that's kind of how they roll. So it was really good to, to be forced to be nimble. That's, I would say was the best thing that I got out of Facebook was, was learning how to be nimble. And that's something that prior to, I hadn't, I hadn't been that way at all. I am somebody who is very rigid. I tend to have plans. And when my plan goes (laughs) astray, I freak out and you just don't have time. You just can't do that at Facebook. It sounds like the type of company where they would far rather you fail quickly than Mm -hmm. than drag things out and, you know, try and figure it out. Oh yeah. Yeah. They don't, they are not about you know, they're not about wasting two years to see if something works or not. It's like, get in, get out. Okay, that failed. Cool. Let's move on to the next thing. One of your biggest achievements at Facebook was putting together the supplier diversity program. Um, Can you talk about that and how that came about? Yeah. um, I would say, again, it, it was really just born out of the idea of really being aware of who we're making technology for and who is involved and has a seat at the table when that technology is being created. And, you know, it's, it's, the case has been made. Women, or at least American women, make the majority of household buying decisions. And Black women drive American culture, which drives global culture. And it's really thinking through 
okay, you have all of these interesting groups who create, you know, particularly if you look at LGBTQ community, they create so many, um, so many phrases and terms that enter the lexicon that you end up seeing on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. And it's like, you need to make sure that these marginalized communities have a seat at the table when we're talking about the technology and content creation that enables them to do what they do and for you to push ads. And for it to be holistic, you have to really be thinking about how how do we incorporate these groups and communities and what's a way to do that? And so for me, it was having had the experience of my dad being an entrepreneur, I saw what that looked like. Of It's very, you, you eat what you kill when you work for yourself. And I don't think that, you know, diversity in tech is just about employees because not everybody wants to work for someone else. And that doesn't mean that they don't have something valuable to contribute. It just means they would be contributing in a different way. And I think, you know, it has to be holistic. I think diversity in any company is about your board. It's about your employees. It's about your customer base and it's about your suppliers. It is those four things. And I saw something that I thought was missing. Um, and that's another thing that I would say credit to Facebook is they empower their employees to just go do something. If you see something and you think that you have the skill set to fix it, you can fix it. I would say this also goes back to your prior point about how do you move in between industries? Well, solve problems that don't have owners in your company. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the really the easy way to do it, right? As you get to build your resume by learning new skills and solving problems that other people may not have even identified. Nobody had identified this as a problem. And so I don't know if that's a unique vantage point just based off of my lens or if it's just everybody's so busy that nobody stopped to think about it. But I thought that it would be a really great way to complement the efforts that were being given to employee diversity. And I thought that it was important to, to have something that a program that mirrored what we were trying to do in those, in those efforts as well. And so that's kind of how it all, it all came together. Um, you, you all had a White House day. Did you go to the White House? <laughs> Did they come to you? How does that work? Uh, yeah, I wish. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> like, you know, Michelle and, and, and Barack just, you know, rolled through and they just came by and said, I mean, Hi. I don't know. These I wish. Happen. I, I, not to me, but if there's a way that, you know, <laughs> if you, if you know if there's some way how to make that happen for me, I'm all for it. Um, oh gosh. but no, so a white house, white house diversity demo day is when a bunch of companies, entrepreneurs and, and other groups kind of collectively come together to, t to talk about, um, efforts that they could make in tech. And unfortunately I was on maternity leave during the time with my daughter. So I did not go. Um, but I was super, super happy that the program was announced there, that we were actually, actually doing the program. Um, but there was no way I was going to be able to do it because my daughter was like two months old. <laughs> that is going to be rough in arguments when she's a teenager. Right. I like I gave up a White House visit for you. I could have met Barack and Michelle. Um, <laughs> oh, well, gosh. I will say I, I ended up getting... <laughs> I ended up getting a sweet, sweet justice on that later that year. So my husband, his cousin is the White House correspondent producer for the Today Show. Oh. And they have a, a media Christmas party every year. And 
I called dibs the year before. I said, I, you've taken your wife twice or three times. You've taken your sister. You're taking your mother the final years. Like I want to go in 2015. <laughs> and, and so he, he took me. Oh my gosh. Was, yeah. And <laughs> I, I have a picture. It's like the proudest moment of my life. Don't tell my kids that. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, it, it was, it was like staring into the sun. It was the coolest thing ever. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you've also written extensively about, um, you know, as we, we've talked about um, diversity in tech and creating the tech. Um, and there was something really interesting about one of your pieces. Um, and it's actually like a headline on your website, which is that diversity is getting people in the door inclusion is keeping them there. So talk a little bit more about that because that act like just kind of hits a spot in my heart for some reason that um, it's such a, a good way of thinking about it because we always wonder, well, why diversity and inclusion? Isn't it the same thing? Mm-hmm. It's not. And I would say the easiest way to think about it is diversity is being counting. Like you're literally counting representation of who's here, who's here, who's not. And inclusion is ensuring that they have a voice and that they're not just there as a token, but they are actively participating. They're engaged. You engage them. You actually listen and you implement. So I would say diversity means being invited to the party, but inclusion is having people ask you to dance. and that. That is the difference. That's the key difference. And I always say that because it's important that we just don't talk about diversity because I I feel like you don't want to alienate people either. I think that a lot of diversity writing and diversity, um, diversity teachings, I guess, for lack of a better term, oftentimes seem to point fingers. And yes, there are some bad actors and some culprits that maybe trend a certain way. But I also think that you don't get anywhere by constantly telling somebody all the messed up things they're doing. And I think having a common language and common experience is a very easy jumping off point to, to make your, your message resonate. And everybody can, can, you know, relate to being excluded at one time or another. Everybody. There's been some point in time in everybody's life where they want it to be a part of something whether it's an organization or a sports team or a date or a dance and, or they were bullied and they, they were not included. And so I think that that is just such a very easy touch point that resonates with everybody. We've all been excluded at some point. I know I told you guys about life some last week, but I want to give you a little more info on it now that I've had some time to play with it. It's a pretty cool app that allows you not only to track your meals and water intake and all of that, but if you sign up for one of their premium subscriptions, which all of my listeners will get a 30% off of if they go to lifesum.com slash LTPF, um, but you can add friends on there. So you guys can do little challenges. Um, you can all find me on there. Um, and you can also get a designed meal plan for you um, for a certain diet specification. So that's been really fun for me to look at. There are recipes. Um, they make it really easy. So check it out at lifesum.com slash LTPF. 
back to the interview. Do you find that it can be more difficult to get the premise of inclusion um, to like to get the point of it to resonate sometimes when, for example, you'll have someone say, well, you're at the table, but then they're talking over you or, or not listening or literally someone right after you saying the same thing and they're getting credit for it. Oh man. Um, <laughs> Sorry I, you know what? I I've had that happen to me several times and it's interesting. I, you know, when I, the things that I write, my mom, she always, she loves the things that I write. And funny enough, a lot of the stuff that I say about diversity in tech, she has wanted to say about um, the school district that she retired from. And she never did because she, she would of course say things to, to us, but she wouldn't, she never raised the point externally or brought it to the school district. And her rationale was like, she just didn't know that it would yield anything. And I get that. And so now when she reads things that I write, she's like, oh, I love this. And then it's like, dot, dot, dot. Are you going to get in trouble? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, am I going to get in trouble from who? (laughs) Like from who? With who's from who? And it's just something where, you know, it is hard because I, I have done work where I've had, you know, people, other people try to take credit for it. And it's hard, particularly, it's not necessarily when you're in the meeting and somebody repeats something that you just said. It's in, it, that happens the most in those meetings that you're not in. Right. So it's also important to make sure that you don't just, you know, you don't try to network up, but there's a, an Issa Rae interview I saw that was like so perfect. And she talked about, it's very important to network sideways, laterally, mm-hmm. because those are the people that you're building with. And those are the people that are eventually going to be in the room. And so it's important to have those advocates as well. And not just people where you think, you know, you're, you're punching above your weight. Everybody tries to do that and that's fine. But you also need to be cognizant of, of networking laterally. And so there may be a colleague who's invited to this meeting that you're not included in that could say, oh, hey, well, you know, Bobby Sue did this or she already said that or go back and read X, Y and Z email from last week where she notes that. And it, it's important to have that because those are those are little touch points that where people can advocate for you in a way that's not super aggressive, mm-hmm. but clearly gets the point across that like, no, no. Somebody else already said this, so let's give proper attribution. <laughs> you know, um, back to our um, our former president, the women in his White House actually did that a lot. Uh, there was an article, I, I can't remember, I'll find it, but they said that they um, they would purposely say things like when a someone when when a man interrupted one of them, one of them would say. Oh, hold on. I just go back to, I just want to hear what she was saying, you know, and stuff like that. And I love that. And it's a, it's a really great point that, yeah, you have to network with the people around you. I mean, it's, it, it, no matter what your level is, what their level is, I think it, I don't think it matters if it's people at your level, below your level, above, like you should have a broad and diverse set of people that you're, uh, that you're, 
acquainted with and that you are making allies with. And, and I, you know, I use that in all senses, right? Age mm-hmm. and everything. So, um, I, I think, um, one of the, the best things that I've read from you, and I say that also noting that I've loved everything you've written, um, is, you know, there was sometimes women are, are not our friends. Um, Ooh, yes. Yes. And, yes. and I say that in that we are so ingrained in the, in our own, um, in the patriarchy that we continue to uphold it. You wrote something about this, uh, in tech recently, um, recently ish, I guess. Um, and I would love for you to talk about it. Oh, you just, you, yeah, that's, that was a lot. I mean, I don't even know where to start. Where should I start? I'm throwing bombs. <laughs> like it's just happening. I know. It, it Let's is. start um, with, with the, um, with uh, the piece you wrote about how uh, misinformed uh, someone was when they said 12 white men in a room can have, can be diverse. Oh Lord, yeah, girl. Um, <laughs> I mean, I get it, right? I I get it. I get it. it. It technically, it could be. It technically could be. I think the issue here is not necessarily just that diversity is about representation. We're we're talking about representation in the tech industry. That is what. That's what diversity in tech means in terms of solving for. It's the diversity piece of having the people in the room and the inclusive piece of having them vocalize what they think you should do with the product and changes you should make to the design or usage cases and whatever else. And the issue there is this woman who was the uh, she was the VP of diversity at Apple said that 12 white men in a room. Uh, you know, is diversity. And technically, yes, it could be. One could be an immigrant. One could be LGBTQ. One could be, uh, one could could appear, could present as white, but actually be Latino or identify as Hispanic. One could be differently abled. Sure. Great. Got it. However, that isn't necessarily what we're talking about when we're talking about underrepresented minorities in particular. And so to me, it was just a straw man argument. It was just it was just a hollow argument and intellectually dishonest. So there's that piece. Um, I think the the issue with that is all of those groups are important. But I also think that there has been a really interesting sort of watering down, if you will, of of diversity to the point where now we're throwing in a bunch of people that I'm not sure necessarily would go into this gumbo. Like you have women, you have differently abled, you have LGBTQ, you have uh, particularly underrepresented minorities, meaning blacks and Latinos. And now we're tossing in veterans, which to me is like, I, I understand, but they could also veterans is a, is intersectional. So they could be all of those other things that I named, but what that, when that was initially created, at least due to my research, it was to make sure that there was a catch-all for white men. Now, I don't know about you in sports, but in tech, white men are not necessarily underrepresented. 
So, yeah, I mean, I feel like they're good in sports, too. Yeah, they're pretty. They're doing okay in tech, too. So, I mean, I understand if the goal is to expand the expand veterans into also opportunities for training. Right. So if you're going to train people who have been deployed and are now coming back home and maybe they're they don't have the proper skill set for certain tech jobs, that's different. But that isn't what's currently happening. So that to me was it just felt like what she was saying was intellectually dishonest. And I just I, I couldn't rock with it. Yeah, when I read, first of all, when I read her, her title, I yeah. about dropped whatever drink was in my hand and then, um, or spit it out, who knows. Um, and then, you know, just the argument, yes, we can have diverse opinions too, right? Like, there, yes, if we could all have a different opinion, but you're, you're missing some key. Some yeah, key cognitive. Cognitive diversity is a whole other ball of wax for me, right? Like, right. I I get it and I appreciate it and I think that it is important. I also think it's important to note that diversity, that when you really reap the benefits of diversity and inclusion and representation is on individual team levels. It's not just saying, okay, well, we have, you know, five black people and two differently abled individuals and three Latinos in legal. Yeah, that's Great, I guess. If you have 300 people in legal, though, I mean, how many of them are bunched onto one specific team or integrated onto all of the different teams? Because you reap the benefits when you have these individuals contribute on the team level, because that's where you get the cognitive diversity. The other piece to that is what she was saying is, yes, all of those different uh, 12 white men could have different ways of looking at the world, particularly if, you know, they are representative of other other marginalized groups like immigrants or LGBTQ or Latino, but all of those things. But it's it's really doing a disservice to how cognitive diversity is formed by ignoring that it's also talking about representation. Right. You're, you're going to get cognitive diversity based on different lived experiences. And a lot of that is born out of being a woman and being a a black woman or being, you know, a differently abled Latina veteran who is also a lesbian. Like you're, you're going to get all of this, but it's got to be based on representation. Yes. You could have a difference of opinion, but that's to say like, so now that this other, let's say that the other white guy in the room is a Republican and the other one is a Democrat. So now we're going to say that's diversity. You know, one of the reasons I was, I I've learned about you um, was because of your position at StubHub. Um, you moved over there um, after Facebook, and you were the head of business operations of North America, which is a giant title, my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what did that incorporate? <laughs> um, a lot of different things. <laughs> I would say probably the the biggest thing that I did was herd cats. And I know that that sounds crazy, but it's a lot of it was, and again, to your point about how do you move between roles and industries and you make analogous arguments for how you've done something before. A lot of that was born out of the fact that I did supplier diversity at Facebook because it was not necessarily in my wheelhouse. I'm an attorney. I wasn't hired to build a supplier diversity program, but it was working cross-functionally to essentially develop a strategy and then manage it across all those different departments that it touched. 
And it's similar. So with StubHub, you have game day operations, you have initiatives and program management with initiatives. And so it's, you know, it's there's certain product uh, development issues. And there were a lot of processes and procedures and even internal metric tools that did not exist. And because I had created those things at Facebook and, and to some extent, I had done a little bit of that at AAA too, it was it was easy to kind of make those arguments in terms of how I could do these things because I had done them elsewhere and, and could point to results. So it was, you know, thinking through certain strategies. Is it, is this a partnership we should, should look to build? Is this the right product or tool enhancement to roll out at this time? Or should we prioritize another one? And, you know, even building just internal tools, it's how do we baseline how successful we've been to understand what the impact of rolling out these new features or functionalities even are. And if you don't have a baseline, you can't tell. So it was, it it was really just kind of creating foundational elements. And then again, asking hard questions. You always have to ask hard questions. Can you tell us about your first week there? Oh dear. (laughs) So (laughs) my first week there, I showed up and, um, I had this fantastic boss named Joseph Asaro, and he's lovely. And he talks a mile a minute. He is a Marine Corps veteran, and he does like jujitsu and um, MMA. And it was like he's intense, Um, but also super funny and personable and sweet. And they told me, okay, great. Welcome. We're so happy you're here. And also you're going to Tampa for the Clemson Bama game on Friday. And I was like, what? I just got, <laughs> like, I literally just got here. Where's the bathroom? <laughs> and where do I sit? And like, my computer doesn't turn on. So can we just get basics first? And so, yeah, that was my first week. My first week was just even trying to learn basics of like, what are your internal tools? What is, what's the meeting culture like? Like, how do you get work done? What are the things you, so I would also say that that experience gave me, um, new questions to ask when you're talking to other companies, because all of those things are intangible, which people don't think to ask necessarily, but they're incredibly important. And they speak to the culture of a company. It was like, what are the tools that you use to get work done? What are the internal tools? How do you collaborate with vendors externally or partners? Um, is this a meeting heavy culture or do you guys do things via email? Like all of those things are super important and people typically don't ask that because they're like, eh, it's minutia, whatever. It's completely important. Um, but yeah, it was really just trying to learn the internal internal process of how you get work done. What are the internal tools? Who does what? Who do I need to work with directly? Um, and then it was, okay, bye now hop on a plane, go to Tampa. (laughs) And what did you do when you were down here? I, I literally worked the game like you, we, so StubHub does, um, so LMS is last minute sales. So it's people that come on site to big events that they staff. So that's Super Bowl. They have a team on site right now in Minnesota, um, which I don't envy them because no. that I think it was like negative six degrees, which just looks disrespectful. It's rude. It's yeah. I, I keep looking at the posts from, you know, some of my colleagues who are up there and I'm like that like it's just mean. Yeah, it's I don't. And I, you know, I've pretty much always lived in California. I lived in I, I live here in Oakland. I lived in L.A. for a couple of years 
And I lived in D.C. um, for a semester in law school, which I loved. But, you know, it snowed two days and then you're over it. And it's not even really that cold when it snows. But I just always look at that and I'm like, how do people live like this? And then the idea that you have to you still have to be somewhere by like 830 on a Monday morning and it's negative five degrees. Like I'm not going to be anywhere except under a cover. No, it's just mean. It's so my, all my, I grew up in Massachusetts and when I moved, um, I'm almost exactly at my three year anniversary. Um, when I moved, we had, I remember literally sitting through a blizzard. It was a Wednesday morning being like, what the F David, why haven't you called me yet? You said you were going to call me Monday, like to myself, not to him. That's my boss. And then the next day he called. And then when I moved two weeks later, um, we had, there was five feet of snow. Mm-hmm. And then the week after I moved, they got another five feet. Oh, and no. yeah, no, I'm, I've been good on the snow thing for a very, very long time. I was pretty miserable up there, to be honest. Um, so watching this, I'm like, oh my gosh. And seeing all these people that I know in the sports industry that live in LA or like, <laughs> you know, like they live in like New Orleans or, or wherever yeah. it is. And I'm just cracking up watching their Insta stories because yeah, none of them are they're miserable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the last minute sales stuff that, uh, you did in Tampa is literally just like working at a booth. Yes. So, and you're in, you know, you, you take it for granted because you're like, oh, okay, this will be cool. And it, I will say it was cool. There were elements where, you know, people are coming to pick up tickets and they had made the decision to drive down because maybe they, they missed the last Bama game or, or for some it was the, they missed the previous Clemson national championship game. And so they thought, oh, well, you know, I, it may never happen again. So I'm going to go buy a ticket. We had a bunch of people who drove down since it was so close a bunch of people from South Carolina drove down Mm -hmm. and it was really sweet and nice to hand, hand over tickets to alums and people who were so excited. And they were like, for some of those people, that's going to be like the, the best memory that they have. And I was handing tickets and some people were like, can you take, wait, 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 I want to take a picture. So like (laughs) people taking a picture of me handing them these tickets. And it's like, it's so sweet to be a part of moments like that for people. Yeah. It's my favorite um, thing with sports is yeah. are those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so, I mean, it's so rewarding when you see that and it's fun and it's, it's, it's just a cool thing. And I think the other thing that was interesting about it is, you know, I, I take for granted to some extent that, you know, my, my grandparents were sharecroppers, which is physically demanding labor. That's manual labor. It's hard. It's in the heat. You're working for 12 hours a day. You're maybe more and you're standing and you're literally just bending over day in and day out. And there are no days off. And I realized I started to get tired because (laughs) you're on your feet. You're on your, you're, I mean, we set up. So first off, we set up this booth, um, at midnight and so they, everybody kind of, uh, we, we recessed at 4 PM in the after or something like that, 4 PM in the afternoon or something. And then we were all going to meet up in the hotel at 12 to set up the booth and stack it, kind of get it ready and then show up again in the morning when we opened. 
that's actually, you know what? That trip is when I got sucked into This Is Us. I found a marathon on. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And that's exactly what happened. I found a marathon on after we recessed at four o'clock. I went up to my room and it was a marathon on USA or TNT or something. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll watch this. Watched everything, bawled and was like, I'm, I'm sold. Um, and then went and set up this booth from 12 to one and then went back to sleep or tried and, uh, showed up again at eight 30 in the morning. And we were on our feet until like 7 PM. And I had a moment where I was whining, like, Oh my God, this is so tiring. And like, I'm not used to, you know, you, if you sit in a chair all day long, having to stand for 12 hours is like, wow. So, and I caught myself after a while and said, Nope, 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 Nope. These people literally picked cotton and worked doing this work for 12, 13, 14 hours a day so that you could complain about having to do it for one. <laughs> Shut the hell up, hand out the tickets and just keep it going. And that's also, you know, a huge touch point for me too, is like always being cognizant of what other people have done for me so that I could be in the position that I'm in. Yeah. I, um, I did not realize and and I recognize my privilege in saying this. I did not realize how short uh, cotton plants were. Oh yes, until so you are bending down quite far. Yeah, I and I realized it on my drive. It's back breaking work, like legit like, back breaking work. Yeah, and and so I I actually only. Uh, I want to say in like September during uh, the hurricane nonsense down here, I drove um, mm. up to D.C. And during the drive, either back or up, I can't remember which, but I drove right next to um, some fields. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Those are cotton plants. Yeah. Oh, and like it was just one of those moments of like, you know, logically I knew, right. I've, I've read books, I've, but I had never seen it. And so like the, um, it, it never truly, truly hit home as like, and now I'm like, I am only, well, I'll be 37 next month. It, oh, like, yay. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank My you. birthday is on Thursday. It is. Yes. I'm going to be 38 Ooh, though. So I'm a year and a month older. Than yes. I am March 22nd. <laughs> Ah, okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I have a really good friend who's March 22nd as well. Oh, see, it's a great day. Um, but so it like, it didn't, um, it didn't resonate with me until I, I saw those. And I'm like, I am 37 and cannot imagine doing that. I, like, and people mm -hmm. were doing this like the, from, you know, five years old until they, you know, passed away and Jesus God. Mm -hmm. And so I, that was actually a really important moment, I think, for me in under in like, I don't know, it's stupid to say, but in like really understanding. Even it's more. not stupid. That's not stupid. And I, I say that because, you know, it. I would say you are really self-aware and awesome to even notice that, you know, cause a lot of people probably make that drive and don't even wonder what that is. Yeah. And I think that there's, there is an, a, a difference between people who my grandmother would say, when you know better, you do better. Right. And some people know better and choose not to do better, which to me is worse. Yes. If you know better, 
and you're attempting to do better, or maybe you don't know how to do better, that's one thing. But if you know better and you're like, mm, I'm good, that is, <laughs> that is yeah. so much worse to me. But it's the fact that you even took the time to pause and look at it and say, oh my God, what? Wow. That's, that's amazing. I think that that's great because it, you chose to acknowledge something that you previously had, you know, until that moment, you, you thought that you had the luxury to bypass it or overlook it and you chose to not overlook it. And that says a lot about you. I shall ponder on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's great. A lot of people don't ever examine stuff like that. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't, they don't examine their surroundings or any of that. So the fact that you did and thought about it and it resonated, that's, that's good. A part of me like doesn't want to say thanks because I don't feel like I should be getting a pat on the head for being aware of these things. So it's like, I'm, I wouldn't say it that way though. Yeah. Let me be, let me, let me say why is that I also feel like, and this is, I try to do this as well with my writing and sometimes I don't always succeed, but I, it goes back to the point of like not beating people over the head with saying why they're bad or something is wrong. A lot of it is people don't know what they don't know. Yeah, that's true. And I don't think that it's fair to necessarily just beat people down because of that. And you didn't know what you didn't know until you turned and looked out the window and you chose to look at that and say, what is this? Oh my God. Oh shit. This is what this is. And that, that is an awakening. That is something where you chose to reflect on it and understand what it was and then have it resonate with you. You could have just kept driving. That's what I mean. So yeah. I don't think it's fair to beat up on people for, you know, they don't know what they don't know. That's true. I had been listening to Hillary's voice for a long time at that point in the drive. <laughs> How is it? How, how's that book? I it's good. I it. It's okay. good. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think, um, you, you learn a little bit more about her and and things that she was going through at that point in time. I think it's easy for people to beat up on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, just think about like her final, like her conciliatory uh, speech, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like that's who she is. And, and what she fights for. And she's not a perfect person, God knows, but you know, neither are you or I or anybody. And we're living in a different age, I think, where we can be very, um, and I, and you know, like I will admit, like I am sometimes at fault for doing this. You know, we, we forget how much more access we have to people and their lives mm-hmm. and their mistakes than we yep. used to. Yep. And, um, and so it is very easy to constantly attack, I think, and to nitpick at the, the mistakes that people have made and, um, and, and forget our own selves. Can you tell me a little bit about your mentor? Oh, so I have a fantastic mentor by the name of Ed Goins. Ed is the general counsel for the Seahawks. And he is a very lovely person who uh, basically walked me through how to properly advocate for myself when I was in a situation and I felt like 
I was getting shortchanged. And I thought, well, I don't really know how to approach this and da da da. And he said, I'm don't allow, I was debating on should someone else kind of push this for me. And he said, nobody is going to advocate for you like you will. And you shouldn't be afraid of that. And I was just like, wow, okay, that's a good point. And you know, I think you, you probably relate to this to a certain extent too. It was like, women are typically, we're penalized for being assertive. And I won't say aggressive because I don't think it's aggressive. I think it's assertive. And if a man were to advocate for himself in the same way, it would be seen as like, yeah, he's going after what he wants. Mm -hmm. And when a woman does it, it's like, wow, she's being really aggressive. And who do you think you are? And, you know, to that extent, Ed was saying, you know, you have to ask for what you want. And if you don't ask, you're not going to get. Yeah. which is very true. And my concern was not just around being um, being seen as too assertive or aggressive. A lot of it too, like there are, there are layers to things. So it's, I'm really tall. And I, I mean, <laughs> I'm 5'10". And I am black. And I'm a woman. And I'm already kind of loud and outspoken. And so when you put those things in a blender and you have me going to someone saying, well, this is what I think I should be getting. And this is what I think I should be doing. That can seem confrontational to people. Oh yeah. Particularly to, and this has been the most interesting thing is that the men who have tried to flex on me the most in my career are men who are my height or shorter. Well, yeah. (laughs) And I think it's like a thing where they're trying to, uh, basically exert their influence or show that they can control my destiny to some extent. And I will say the one person who didn't really do that was Joseph, my lovely stub hub boss, who was <laughs> a, a little, I think he was my height or a little bit shorter, but every other man who I've written, which is interesting because all the other men I've worked with have basically been my height or shorter. They have all tried to flex on me. <laughs> and I think they would do less of that if I, seemed or, or embodied someone that they felt like they could, that they could literally bully because I'm smaller than them. Yeah. Do you, so I think it's, it's both, it's the, it's both of those things together. It's like, I'm asking you, I'm, t- or I'm not asking, I'm telling you what I think I deserve and I'm could probably take you in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> how did you meet Ed? Oh, how did I meet Ed? That's a good question. Um, I want to say somebody introduced it or somebody referred him to me um, when I was trying to figure out like how to get in tech and what I wanted to do. Because before he went to the Seahawks, he was at um, Disney Interactive. So he was doing so. So to your point about switching industries, he's also really, really good at it. Mm -hmm. And um, I was talking to him about how do I navigate that and what what does a jump look like? So I think if I recall correctly, it was somebody who went to, he went to uh, Stanford undergrad. And so a lot of Stanford and Cal people we had in common. And I think someone said, you should talk to Ed. He's, uh, he's so sweet. I uh, emailed him today when I was like, oh my God, she knows Ed. Um, And I haven't gotten a response yet. So I can't wait for, I can't wait for him to read it and be like, wait, you're doing what? (laughs) Yeah, he's he's awesome. Um, And he the other thing I really appreciate about him is 
seeing how, how much of a whole person he is. I think oftentimes when you have mentors, particularly in a professional space, you see a lot of who they are um, just in the realm of work. Right. And Ed allows me to see him holistically. Like he loves golf. Yes, he does. Um, he, oh my God, he is like a golf fiend. This dude will fly anywhere for like a cool golf experience. Um, and then he has two daughters and it's also nice to kind of watch him with his children and how he navigates that. And I think that it's important for people to see, you know, a holistic experience of, of a mentor because that also like you can't, it's a professional accomplishments or career achievement that doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so and it's also nice to see a man doing the work-life balance thing because it's so often it's like they want to, I, I can't, I, I feel like every panel I've been on in the last five years has asked me either about diversity or work-life balance or both. And it's like, are you asking dudes this? Right. So, I mean, are you asking that? Are you asking them? But then I think the cool thing is Ed is actually, I mean, he's actually walking the talk. So, and that's nice to see him, you know, do it holistically. Um, we, I've seen that a lot with panels with women getting, you know, kind of pinpointed for those particular questions. And my boss is very similar in terms of like seeing him holistically, right? He's very close to his family and, and very open with me about different things. And, um, I think from a mentor standpoint, it's really easy to put them on a pedestal, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have the full picture, it becomes easier and easier to do that. And then you do that comparison game where mm -hmm. you're like, how can so-and-so keep their shit together while doing all of this stuff? And I can't even find two matching shoes. Um you know, and I think it's a problem that has has been around in leadership for a long time where in certain spaces you have to put forth a a, a perfect image and yep. and and life at least story wise, right? And people aren't authentically themselves and showing their struggles or um the lower points and you know this goes back to social media too right like it's a a curated view of your life where mm -hmm. it's a highlight reel yeah where i try and be like i i did a, a little insta story today of like a picture of me i tagged you in it um but like you know hashtag no makeup sunday like i do that <laughs> on purpose because well a it's just who i am like i'm not i'm not one of those people who can like constantly put on the facade it just yeah you know I've never I, I can't that do that I'm just not good at it I mean I'm just I suck at it to be quite honest and I think what's interesting I don't know if we had this conversation um but I had a friend who told me oh you 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 don't post happy and I was like I don't what does the hell does that even mean and they're like well you know between your Facebook statuses and then like your you know, sometimes your IG pictures or you're, you're like, oh my God, my daughter has changed clothes for the fifth time. And I'm like, yeah, that's because I'm not giving you curated content of showing you the like organic gluten-free vegan meals I'm making for my family because spoiler alert, those don't happen. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I don't do that. And I feel like 
we actually do people a disservice by showing them highlight reels and not the real day to day. And so that, I mean, that was the exact reason why I asked you, oh my God, is this on camera? Because I legit have a shower cap on right now because I have curly hair and I'm deep conditioning it. <laughs> yeah. So for, the, <laughs> so for the listeners, Bari emails me. She's like, by the way, this is audio only, right? Because, uh, and I was like, girl, I would not do that to any other woman. I would not video an interview unless we were like already in a space <laughs> put together. <laughs> but that's, I mean, and that's to me, that's, that's real life, right? It's like, that's what, this is, this is who I am. I love sweatpants. I love flat shoes. I love, you know, a, a good ponytail or a bun. I don't typically wear makeup. I might wear makeup four times a year at best. And for me, it's just, I, that's who I am. I am authentically myself. And so the idea that I would curate content is not authentically me either, because right. I just don't do that. I, everybody who knows me, and even people that don't now that you can read my writing knows that I don't really have a filter. Mm -hmm. It's a way of how you present that unfiltered information, which is the distinction. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's something um, I, I've, I've been spoken to about at times and there are things that I'm very open about that have given people a little bit of pause. And, and my response has been, listen, if somebody doesn't want to hire me because I am, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, outspoken about the fact that I've, uh, you know, had depression and anxiety since I was a kid, then I probably don't want to work with them anyway. Right. Because and that's yes, that is exactly it. And that's the other thing I would say that was awesome about Facebook, which made me want to continue to one, stay in tech, but two, find a culture that is like minded is the whole notion of bring your whole self to work. Yeah. And I would caveat that a bit, maybe bring 80% of your whole self to work. Cause there's 20% that nobody wants to see. Nobody, nobody, not nobody. even you. <laughs> and, um, but so I have a, my high school boyfriend, it, his birthday is today and he is having a Super Bowl Sunday taco party. And that is where I'm headed after this. Yep. But that is something he actually said to me. Uh, he sent me a text message after he read my, my New York times piece about the Apple diversity woman's comments. Yep. And he said, you have a really good way of pissing people off. And I said, well, are you pissed off? So um, disclosure, he is, he's a white male. And I said, so are you, are you pissed off? And he's like, no, I'm not. I get it. I totally get it. I just don't want you to do something that would be career limiting. And I said to him the same thing you just said, which is, well, if somebody is not going to hire me or wouldn't call me back or would decide to dismiss me from an interview process based off of that, I don't need to work there anyway. Like that's, that's who I am. And that's what I think. And if you don't agree with that, then I'm probably not the employee for you anyway. Right. And I think, you know, even just, you know, I want to recognize that even us being able to say that is a privilege, right? It because, is. It totally is. You know, and, um, and not to, you know, sound bratty about it, but, you know, and recognizing that, um, I think is something I try to do. <laughs> like, I know for, you know, there, like I, you know, sometimes you don't have a choice. You need a job. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm at a point where I do have that, that luxury of yeah. being able to, um, make choices, even though they may, curtail something later on. And uh, uh, 
I think it's it's something that we talk about on the podcast a lot that I always think is important. And it's why I don't even do much editing on the podcast, you know, so you, <laughs> A, so I can hear myself blundering around a little bit and learn from that, but also um, because the conversations, conversations aren't ever perfect, right? And if it, even if this conversation is too curated, it's going to feel false. And, um, and so I leave my snort laughs in. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think that that's great. And it's, I think you, you know, sometimes it's, it's hearing a playback where you're saying, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I should have said it a different way or it's where you, that's where you learn. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think that that's true everywhere. I, I agree. I agree. And the more I do these, I think I get better. Um, you know, I still have some verbal tics that I can, I work on, but I get so caught up sometimes in the conversation that I'm not even paying attention. And uh, that, that just happens. Do you, um, what do you do by way of self-care? Oh, God. I don't even know what that is. Like, what? Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Right. I read. I like I love to read. I have always been the I, well, I was the kid that um, had a flashlight hidden mm-hmm. in my room. So when my mom told me I go to bed, like I would just bust out a flashlight and keep reading my book or whatever it is I was doing. So for me, I love to read. My happy place is reading and writing. It always has been. And um, that's just always been my thing. And that was one of the things that I wanted my son to focus on and try to think about and do this year was find his thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was reading and writing. And I pretty much feel like I knew that when I was about six, oddly enough. So um, I think that is what I do for self-care is read. I love to read. I also, what else do I do? I think a good a good brunch with a girlfriend is super fun or mm-hmm. a couple of girlfriends. I also really like soul cycle. I did not know I was going to like soul cycle <laughs> as much as I did, but I, I do like I went this morning and it, it, sometimes it's a struggle because it's like anything else exercise oriented. Sometimes you hate getting up and going in the process of that, but then once you're done, you feel better. Right. And you feel like you did something. And I, I really enjoy that. So those are probably my, big ones. Oh, those are great. What are you currently reading? Ooh, a bunch of different stuff. So I have, I haven't started this yet, but I'm very excited to, and it's just been sitting by my bed waiting, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Oh, I just, yeah, that's I, on my next to order list. Yeah. I need to, I need to, to finish that. But, um, I, funny enough, I had been talking, I, I've been in contact with, uh, a book agent and he reached out to me, um, based on the New York times pieces that I had and a couple in wired and was like, Oh, I've read this. And I think this is interesting. So a lot of it is also me just trying to figure out what do I want that narrative to look like? If I choose to go that route, what would that look like? So that's awesome. So yeah. Are you the type of person who has like five books going at once? Yeah. Yeah. Same. Yep. It's hard for me to, I'm really good when I can focus, but it's, I I also really like variety. So that's my, that's the hard part for me. Sometimes for me, it's like what mood I'm in or how tired I am. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes you want something easy to read. Yep. Sometimes you want to really like think about something. So yeah, it, it depends on the mood and, and a bunch of different things. <laughs> um, where can 
people find you? If they want yeah, well, to follow you along with your with your fun tech journeys. <laughs> uh, my fun tech journeys can be found on Twitter, but I will say that my Twitter is fun tech journeys. It is uh, watching this is us. <laughs> it's it's sports. It's music. A little pushback it, sometimes. Oh yeah, it's a lot. It's 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 everything. Yeah. I, I have a lot of diverse interests, so I'd say probably. of it, though, is tech or business oriented. And then the other 50% is a mix of sports, music, kids, random black Twitter musings, because black Twitter is an entity unto itself. Exactly. So I would say uh, Twitter, Bari A. Williams. That is my handle, all one word. And my website, bariawilliams.com. Thank you to Bari for being on the podcast. I I learned so much every time I talked to her and um, it, it was a, it was great to be able to spend this time speaking with her about her path and um, some of the issues that I know she's really passionate about. Make sure you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or RadioInfluence.com. As I mentioned at the start of the show, um, you can find us on all of the social media at LTPF Pod. So that's on Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter. And then our website is LTPFPod.com. You can email us at LTPFPod at gmail.com. And I am at Bobby Sue on Twitter. I hope you all have a great rest of your week and get ready for some baseball because Pitchers and Catchers is next week. This is Jim Fannin, America's Zone Coach, and I'm excited about bringing my new podcast, The Jim Fannin Show, to RadioInfluence.com. Each week, we're going to talk about the zone and how this mindset can help you in all facets of your life. I'll give you all the tools you need to change your life and help guide you to become your genuine, authentic best self. With the only proven blueprint for attracting the zone mindset, I've helped transform millions of lives. In my 40 years of experience, I've coached CEOs and senior executives from 350 of the Fortune 500 companies in 50 different industries. I've coached professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hall of Famers, all pros, all stars, entertainers, and so many more to help them gain the tools and techniques to create a life of simplicity, balance, and abundance. And now it's my privilege to bring these methods to you every week, along with some of my champion good friends as special guests. If you want to get in the zone in all you do, check out The Jim Fannin Show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. 